Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about deterrence through cleverness. Last time we talked about how a pacifist philosopher, Mozi, interceded on behalf of a small kingdom during the Warring States era and saved it from destruction. Related to this case of private diplomacy, and frankly related to what's been going on in the news, although again because we refrain from direct discussions of contemporary politics, I won't go into how, I've been reflecting on what I call deterrence through cleverness in Chinese history. Hopefully, everyone knows about deterrence. It's a concept that gained widespread currency during the Cold War, and has remained a hot topic ever since in political science. In international relations, it means making your adversaries sufficiently worried about your capabilities so that they decide not to attack you in the first place. During the Cold War, deterrence often took the form of mutually assured destruction. If you nuke me, I will nuke you, and then we're all dead. But obviously lesser forms of deterrence exist. You can deter your adversaries by convincing them that if they attack, they're likely to suffer lower but still terrible forms of retaliation or disastrous losses. Or you can deter them by convincing them that they're unlikely to achieve their war aims. Or both. That much is easy enough to understand. The tricky part of deterrence theory has always been the how. How do you get your adversaries to believe that they will fail? At the height of the Cold War, we got to a pretty absurd point of the U.S. and the USSR promising each other that they would fire their nuclear arsenal to destroy the other, and the Earth as well, even if doing so already served no purpose. This was how we got films like Dr. Strangelove. Mutually assured destruction was, quote-unquote, mad. But setting that aside, obviously building up your own military forces on some level is one way to convince your adversaries not to make a move. And then, perhaps trickiest of all and most difficult, there is the possibility of convincing your adversaries to stand down just by talking to them. In the annals of Chinese history, we see a number of examples of this. The tale of Mozi going to the king of Chu and persuading him against attacking the small kingdom of Song with his newfangled siege engines is one example of this. Although it's a special case, of course, as Mozi was a free agent, as it were, a private individual acting on his own initiative, and not a courtier or an envoy of any particular government. But other examples come to mind of men acting in a more official capacity. These men were often highly conscious that the relative cleverness of their words 
and the impression that they made on foreign powers could mean the difference between war and peace. And yes, often it was about cleverness, intelligence. On this podcast, I previously told the story of the Sioux brothers from the Northern Song Dynasty in the 11th century. The brothers Su Shi and Su Chu were considered two of the most brilliant individuals on the Song Dynasty political and cultural scene. And they knew it too. Then the emperor appointed the younger brother, Su Chu, to serve as ambassador to the kingdom of Xixia, northwest of the Song Empire and generally in today's province of Ningxia. Xixia at this time was a significant military power and potentially hostile to the Song Empire in the Chinese heartland. If Xixia were to invade, there was no guarantee that the Song would be able to prevail. So Su Chu, as a diplomat, was now in charge of a delicate mission. If he so much as said the wrong thing to the leaders of Xixia, he might trigger a war. When Su Shi bade his brother farewell, he wrote him a goodbye poem, which included these famous lines. Chan Yu Ruo Wen Jun Jia Shi if the Khan should ask you about your family, don't admit to him that ours is the number one family in China. In other words, Su Shi was saying to his brother, you and I know that we're pretty much the two most brilliant men in the Song Empire. So you know that when you meet the Khan, he also will be impressed with how clever you are. But don't tell him that we're number one in China. Make him think that men with your level of intelligence are a dime a dozen at the Song court. If he believes that, then he won't dare to start a war. I write about another example of this deterrence by cleverness, albeit a less purposeful one, in my book, From the Wall to the Water, available now on Amazon and elsewhere. This episode comes from the first half of the 8th century during the Tang Dynasty and concerns China's national poet, Li Bai. As I discuss in the book, Li Bai was born in a Chinese garrison town in what is now Kyrgyzstan and grew up there until his teenage years before relocating to China proper. As a result of his peripatetic upbringing and a generous dollop of natural talent, Li Bai was a clever linguist who spoke several languages. So the story goes that one day, an envoy from a foreign country came to the Tang court. Said country was at the time considering opening hostilities against the Tang Empire. So the envoy came with the attitude of laying down a challenge. He delivered a letter from his king, written in their language, without a Chinese translation. And he challenged all the courtiers and generals present. I bet, he said, 
that none of you can speak my language. Sure enough, none of the officers present could. So the emperor sent the palace guards out to look for Li Bai. Li Bai, being a high-functioning alcoholic, was of course passed out in a bar. The guards found him and brought him into court, where they made him wake up and presented him with the foreign king's letter. Can you read it? They eagerly asked Li Bai. Li Bai replied that he sure could. He could read the language and speak it too. So he came out to meet the ambassador, spoke to him in his own language, and then wrote a reply letter in that language as well. The ambassador was so impressed that when he returned home, he advised his king not to test the might of the Tang Empire. In thinking about examples from Chinese history of this sort of deterrence, I remember one more famous example. I say example, I'm thinking of the person, but there are actually multiple stories associated with this same man. And we're back in the Warring States period, the late Warring States, so the third century BC, with its seven major kingdoms plus minor ones. Towards the end of this period, of course, the kingdom of Qing was growing into a superpower. Ling Xiangru was a courtier at the kingdom of Zhao, which bordered the Qing and was ever more worried about a potential Qing invasion. At some point before the beginning of this story, someone had discovered an enormous piece of jade in the mountains and given it to the king of the kingdom of Chu. After some back and forth, unimportant for now, in 283 BC, the jade ended up at the court of the Zhao. Because Chinese tradition, and perhaps the religion at the time and its shamanistic rituals, attached great significance to jade, this huge piece of jade became a sought-after object among the kings of the Seven Kingdoms. So one day the king of Qing demanded that the king of Zhao give it to him. In exchange, the king of Qing promised to give the Zhao 15 townships. The king of Zhao wasn't sure what to do. He felt pretty certain that if he gave the jade to the Qing, the king of Qing would immediately repudiate his promise and not hand over the 15 towns. But if the king of Zhao were to refuse the demand, that he felt certain that it would mean war. So the king of Zhao sent his brightest courtier, Ling Xiangru, as envoy to the Qing, accompanying the jade. And he charged him with protecting Zhao's interests to the best of his abilities. When Ling Xiangru met the king of Qing at the Qing court, he saw that, indeed, the Qing was not sincere in offering 15 towns in exchange for the jade. 
Rather, the king of Qing intended to keep the jade by force, and then repudiate his own promise. Through a series of clever arguments and maneuvers, the sources tell us, Lin Xiangru managed to convince the Qing not to engage in what amounted to highway robbery, but to maintain some diplomatic decorum befitting the king's royal station. Lin Xiangru returned to the Zhao with the jade in tow and intact, while the Qing rescinded its offer of 15 towns. From this story, we get the Chinese expression, the cheng yu, wan bi gui zhao, to bring the intact jade back to the zhao. But like I said, the brilliant Ling Xiangru had more than one story associated with him. The second story goes that sometime after Ling Xiangru's successful defense of the jade, the king of Qing decided to invade the kingdom of Zhao. And the Qing managed to take several towns, killing some 20,000 Zhao citizens in the process. After this initial success, however, the king of Qing wished to turn his attention toward another rival kingdom, the Chu. So he proposed peace terms to the king of Zhao, and invited him to meet near the border to discuss them. The king of Zhao was in a bit of a bind. He couldn't really decline the invitation, A, because he needed to negotiate the peace terms, and B, because if he were to decline, it would be a show of weakness. The implication being that he was too scared to meet with his adversary. But there were genuine reasons for fear. Ancient diplomacy wasn't like today, with TV cameras rolling and international journalists waiting for the joint statement. In ancient China, it wasn't unusual for one side to invite the other to treat, and then murder them in the middle of dinner. The way politics was done in ancient China was a lot more Game of Thrones, and a lot less the West Wing. With no other choice, the king of Zhao accepted that he had to go. But he brought Ling Xiangru with him, and kept him close by. Sure enough, when the two kings met, the king of Qing sought to humiliate and to coerce his counterpart into ceding 15 towns in addition to the ones that the Qing had already taken. If the king of Zhao should resist, the royal guards behind the king of Qing had their swords at the ready. Again, Ling Xiangru interceded to assert Zhao's national interests, even in the face of potential violence. Whatever the Qing's arguments, whatever its justifications for demanding these townships, Ling Xiangru had an answer. And boldly, he demanded that the Qing give its capital city to the Zhao in exchange for the 15 towns that it asked for. Now, I previously said that 
This episode would be about determinants through cleverness, through displays of intellect. King Xiangru had intellect to spare. But now, in this crucial moment, he also showed the importance of sheer courage. The king of Qing had grown outraged by Ling Xiangru's demands, and now he wanted to order his guards to kill the man on the spot. But Ling Xiangru pointed out that two could play this game. As a mere scholar Mandarin, and not a soldier, he had not previously seemed to present a bodily threat against the king of Qing. As such, the king had allowed Ling Xiangru to come within just a few feet of his person. Now Ling Xiangru implied that he just might have a dagger hidden under his robe. If the guards were to kill him where he stood, his blood would spill onto the king's robe, so close were they to each other. But that also meant that if he had a weapon on him, he could most likely get to the king before the guards could get to him. Did His Majesty the King of Qing really want to take that risk? The end result was that the two sides pulled away from each other and went their separate ways, neither conceding much to the other in the peace treaty. And Ling Xiangru again successfully defended Zhao's interests. Of course, in the end, some years after that and after Ling Xiangru's death, the Qing ultimately destroyed the Zhao and completed its conquest of all the other six kingdoms to reunify China. But that's another story, and for a time at least, for a moment in history, Ling Xiangru was able to hold back the tide of history through his verbal skills, his cleverness, and his courage. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.